Right, Joel graciously gave me a second hour after he looked at, at the slides I was sending to present for one session. He called me and said, uh, they hear me other times. He said, would you like an, another hour? He said, this is a lot of material to cover. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So we could probably stay two more. Wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, wouldn't be hard. <clears throat> and... Well, let me, let me start, and then I'll, I'll tell you a, a little background. <clears throat> the reality is no one wants to do this. Parent, you're a parent. Nobody wants to do that. But it's a reality for an increasing number of families. In years past, there were many multi-generational families, most of the time as a result of economic conditions. Today, the multi-generational family is most often a health necessity. Illness, dementia, Alzheimer's, and still sometimes economics. Uh, so let me share our stories. This gives you a little background of where we come from. After my mom died, my parents, we, we sold a family farm. I'm an only child. We sold the family farm. And <clears throat> my mom and dad and I and my wife, we talked about this and decided it was a, probably the best option for us. So we sold the family farm. And we took some of that money from the family farm and used it to build a house that had an in-law suite from my parents. <clears throat> My children at that time were like one and four. So my children, for the next 11 years, grew up in a multi-generational home. We had mom and dad for five years. At the end of five years, mom had a severe stroke, and within two weeks, she was gone. Within about three or four weeks after that, <clears throat> I realized how much mom had been covering for dad even though they lived in the same premises they had their own side of the house so you just didn't see some things but mom had really been covering for him <clears throat> and I realized I knew she paid the bills but I had no idea he had so little idea of what life was at that point in time <clears throat> and so I sat down with dad one day much to my surprise he agreed very readily and I said pop I said since mom's gone, I've noted some things, and I'm listing them off. I said, I think it would be a good idea, while you still have presence of mind, if we went to our attorney, his attorney actually, and had, up a, power, had a power of attorney drawn up that gives me the freedom to manage your affairs. And much to my surprise, he looked at me and said, well, kid, and that was, that's what he called me most of the time. He said, well, kid, if you think we need to do that, let's go do it. So we did. We, we had a power of attorney drawn up. And from that point on, I, I managed all his affairs. We had some comical times about it sometimes. <clears throat> At Christmas time, I would get some cash, and I would take Pop and the kids, and we'd go to a Christmas tree farm, and I'd put the cash in Pop's pocket when we left. We'd go to a Christmas tree farm, and I'd let Pop and the kids pick out the Christmas tree, and they'd cut it down, and then we'd go back to the little, this was up north, we'd go back to the place where they had a shed, and they'd wrap the tree, and they had hot cocoa and those kind of things, and 
Pop got to pay for the tree. He would grin from ear to ear. We'd go home. If you ask him the next day, what do you think of the tree? He'd say, oh, I guess that's okay. He wouldn't even remember that the day before he had gone to help get the tree and paid for it. He lived in the, in the absolute present. Except if you sit down and talk to him. And then he lived 30, 40, 50 years back and could tell you all the stories with all the characters in them. If I heard them once, I heard them 350,000 times. You know, it was, <laughs> that was his pop. <clears throat> we moved to Miami where I was associate pastor at church there and ran a counseling program along with being on the pastoral staff. And another PCA pastor just observed our family. I didn't, know he, I didn't know he was doing this. He just observed our family. And when Pop died, after we'd been there two years, three years when we were there, I guess three years we'd been there, Pop died. That pastor came to me and said, I want you to write a book for the denomination that we can use in a Sunday school class. And I said, no, I said, I don't have the academic background for that. I said, I've got the theology and the practical experience, but I don't have the academic understanding of gerontology. So a year later, he came back to me and he handed me a check for $45,000 and he said, go take a sabbatical, get what you need and write the book. So that book he showed you earlier, The Art of Aging, that was the book that came out of that graduate work that year. <clears throat> it was originally called, Did a Good God Make Old Age? But somehow other people just didn't identify with that title, so we changed it to The Art of Aging. Some years later, we're living in Atlanta, and my wife's parents were more the average age. My parents were 40 when I was born. Her parents were about 21 when she was born. So it was more, I had more identity with her parents in many respects than I did my own. Her mother, I always tell my classes, her mother was one of my best friends, and they look at me kind of like, yeah, sure. But she really was. When her father went down with Parkinson's, we lived in Birmingham. They lived in Henry County, Georgia. My wife would leave after church on Sunday and drive to Henry County and help her mom take care of her dad for six months. And she'd come home on Thursday afternoon because her brother was a traveling salesman and he'd come back in town Thursday night. So he'd cover the weekend and help on the weekend and Pam covered the first part of it. We did that for six months. And she would tell me about how difficult it was becoming. And, of course, Daddy was never wanted to go to a nursing home. He protested that, understandably. And finally, I said to Pam, I said, it has to stop because it's going to hurt you or hurt your mom. You guys cannot handle 225-pound dead weight. You just can't do it. Well, then he came up with a bed sore, and that sort of helped and we got him into a nursing home. Well, he only lived two months after he went to the nursing home and he passed away. So we've been down this track for 11 years with my parents and actually more than six months with her parents, but six months in which she was going back and forth to Atlanta to work through the process. So experientially, we kind of have an understanding of this aging and caring process, parenting your parent process. Academically, I have some understanding of it, 
I did my work at UGA, and that was the that was the year they set up the aging center at UGA, and Dr. Poon came to head it up. So it was a good good experience academically and useful experience. <clears throat> so that's kind of the background. Since then, I've been developing these seminars and and, and doing them at our church and other churches. In fact, next month we're we're in uh, Huntsville doing an all-day Saturday seminar on aging, so it's not just one session, it's the whole day thing. And this is just one piece, this is one piece of it. <clears throat> and that's why this is, he said this is long, is because this is actually two, two hours for up there. And I tried to put it together where I could give you a good, quick overview, and since you were going to have the slides, if we didn't have time to look at everything, you would at least go home and be able to read it. So the biblical social responsibility. <clears throat> Do we have a responsibility to care for our parents? Do we have a responsibility socially and theologically? Now, I think both sides are answered theologically, but I'm just trying to look at it a little bit differently. Book of Romans 13.8 says, no, no, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Fulfill the practical obligation of caregiving, according to 1 Timothy 5.8, which says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his own household, parenthesis, parents, that's not in the text, I'm putting that parenthesis in there, he has denied the faith because the general principles of the faith teach you to, to do this. <clears throat> and then Paul says, if he doesn't do this, he's worse than an unbeliever. So do we have a social and a biblical responsibility to care for a parent? And my answer is yes. And it's not always a pleasant process. I'm going to give her a chance to tell you a story or two as we we go along. Um, But I'm going to tell you one here quickly. I had had a cousin who, who was older than I who took care of her daddy. Her dad was a terrible alcoholic. He, he could drink a case of beer in a day. And she very persistently and very lovingly and, and, and uh, tenderly cared for him. And when he was about 75 one day, she made him lunch and brought lunch to the table. And he had a beer bottle in his hand. He finished the, that beer bottle. He set it down. He looked at her. He said, that's the last one of those I'm ever going to drink. It's ruined my family. And he never had another, never had another beer. One of those, one of those amazing uh, kind of stories. But she patiently, painstakingly cared for him, although he lived with her probably 20, 25 years. <clears throat> Honor your father and your mother, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And what, where does that come from? Anyone know? Where? Yeah, it comes from, the, comes from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. It's the only one with a promise. Right? So it's been around for a long time. Right? In your text there, I give you a, a, a place you can go online and read an interesting article about this. When you're reading about uh, aging 
materials. And if you're going to care for a parent, an aging parent or an aging relative, an uncle, aunt, whatever it may be, you know, every once in a while I have somebody who is taking care of a neighbor. No blood relationship. They've just lived there. They've known them for years. They have nobody, and they take them in and take care of them. That's still filling the social side of the responsibility. Okay? So when, if you do any reading, you want to keep in mind this little diagram. Secular literature only goes this way. Okay? It looks at the event on one side or the other, the event of coming into the world, an event of leaving the world, and it only talks about it in this direction. You're always going to want to evaluate what you read here in light of the fact of God. Okay? So you, you read the secular literature through a theological grid. And if you're in my graduate program at at Birmingham Seminary, every counseling course except the first one also has a secular text. The best text I can find that goes along with that course, and I do that for two reasons. I'm graduating people with a master's degree in counseling. They have a master's in counseling, they go down to the church, the Baptist church in the corner, they set up shop, they're going to have to relate to other counselors in town. And if they only have my master's in biblical counseling, and they only have a theological perspective, they're not going to understand what that guy is talking about. That's going to make them look foolish, and it's going to make our school look foolish. So I make them read a secular text in every class I teach. And then I walk them through that text and help them learn how to read that text through their theological grid. Okay? So, now, you, don't, maybe you may not have all that elaborate theological grid, but you are a believer and you read your Bible. Okay? So when you read this secular literature, and if you're going to care for somebody in age, you're going to have to read some of it, because we haven't published that much of it. You're going to have to read some of it. Read it with your Bible lenses on. And do an analysis of it, and an assessment of what you're reading. This is good? Nah, that's not good. This is good? Nah, that's not good. Learn to sort it out that way. <clears throat> now, let's just... This is the part I would have skipped over quickly, but since he gave me an extra hour, I'm going to walk through these. Okay? Biblical perspective on aging. I say skip over because you could have read them, but I want to just do it orally now since we have the time. Older adults are blessed with resources to be invested in the kingdom. Ever think of aging that way? Secondly, older adults have the opportunity for great fruitfulness. You can read the passages. I'm not going to take the time to read the passages. I encourage you to go back and read the passages. But older adults have time for great fruitfulness. Um, he and I were talking earlier today, and he was telling me what his hopes are when he can tell Southern Company goodbye. Okay. He's not going to be an older adult yet when he gets there, but he's going to be going that direction. Okay? I'm an older adult. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but what he said was he's going to be able to invest everything God has given him 
in the kingdom directly. Right now, he does some of that, and he's investing in the kingdom otherwise by taking care of his family and his responsibilities and setting an agenda, showing, demonstrating the grace of God in people's lives. But he gets to the place where he can put all of that in the kingdom. Older adults have the opportunity to provide, uh, to be examples and provide wisdom to younger believers. If you're a woman in here and you're over 40, you're an older woman. Sorry about that. And you're an older woman to the college girls in your church. They think you're old. (laughs) And it gives you opportunity to build into their lives. You've made some of the mistakes you don't want them to make. You can put flesh on that. Older adults are responsible to use their spiritual gifts in the body. The guy to me that says, I'm 65, I've got my social security and my retirement, see you, I'm going to play golf on Sundays. I honestly have questions about all the Sundays he attended church before. Because he sure didn't learn what it was about. Older adults, as part of the body of Christ and citizens of the kingdom, should play a critical role in the church. Leadership, examples, modeling, giving. I would encourage you men in here, I know you're here trained counseling, but I'm talking about stuff that gives you the chance to counsel. Find you a younger man and pray with him regularly. Cultivating. Buy him lunch once a month. Poke around a little bit, see how he's thinking. Find out where it's not right. And then share some scripture with him. I'm not saying that's wrong, and then share the scripture. No, just poke around and find out, and then begin to talk, bring some scripture up and talk about it. Right now, at our church this year, we have a theme called LEAD. And what it is, it's about lifestyle evangelism. And our whole year, we're preaching and teaching and cultivating and emphasizing how do you evangelize in the way you live. Okay? That's what I'm talking about doing with younger men. Older adults are worthy of honor and respect. Older adults are fertile ground for evangelism. Now I surprised you in that one tonight. You don't think that way. Most people don't think that way. Older adults are fertile ground for evangelism. I'm going to come back to that later. Critical relationship to consider. Okay. So we got some theological framework now. Let's talk about critical relationships to consider. All of a sudden, one in 
of your, your counselee comes in and says, Dad's health has gotten to the place. He can't keep the yard up anymore. He can't do this anymore. And Mom can't think well enough to make meals regularly anymore. What are we going to do? And you're sitting there, you're saying, uh, why'd you come to me? <laughs> no. Get ready, it's going to happen. It happens with great regularity. Probably the last four or five years, I had a new case every three months. And it was that very question. What do we do now? So, those questions up. Here's, here's some critical relationships to consider. One, <clears throat> with the parent and with the siblings. With the parent, assess the strength of the relationship. Your relationship with them. Their relationship with you. Have you been talking? You're talking, I'm, I'm, I like to speak in the present, so you take it and think of it in terms of this is the way you're having a conversation with your counselee. <clears throat> um, how has your relationship been with your parent? How often do you have dinner together? How often do you play golf together? How often do you go to the shooting range together? How often have you done so and so? Just ask some questions that helps you assess where that relationship is. And then look back over history. How has it been historically? Has there been a point at which it was good and there was a break? Why was there a break? What happened? And then another question is, how's your communication? Maybe they play golf together, but you know, you can play golf together and and communicate terribly. How's your communication? What kind of conversations do you have? What, do you, what kind of things do you talk about in common? And then, is this a relationship in which there's mutual respect? And you say, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? It has a lot to do with the price of tea in China. Because if you're going to set up shop with them in your household to care for them, <laughs> all these things are going to come to the surface real quickly. And if you haven't thought ahead of time about how to work through them, you're going to be in trouble. You may be the, you may be the couple, counseling couple, and it may be your parent, and maybe you went to talk to a friend, and they're going to say to you, hey, look, uh, tell me what you're telling me. If, you, if you, bring the, you move your parents in, you're going to be back here regularly. I don't care if you are a counselor. You'll be back here regularly. Because that's the way it's going to work. <clears throat> How about siblings? Oh, that's another part we don't sometimes think about. <laughs> We, did, we had one of these seminars at church two years ago, and one of the couples came with an elder and his wife and came and said, well, we get along fine with mom and dad, and we can work with mom and dad, but my brother and his wife, that's a different story. And so you don't only have to assess the situation with the parent, assess the situation with the siblings. <clears throat> who gets along with whom and who doesn't? Now, there may be lots of reasons why they don't, 
And you may or may not be able to get into those, but at least you have to understand who you, who you can depend on and who you can't depend on. Who has power of attorney? And this is really tricky. Sometimes this sibling has the time and the availability to take care of the parent, but the parent has given this sibling the power of attorney. Boy, that, <laughs> that turns out to be pretty tricky, especially if these two siblings, and if it's split that way, it's probably because these two siblings weren't that close to start with, and that's why the parent gave this one the job. But this one can't take care of them because they both work and they're professionals, and this one is a retired school teacher and she can. So you have to ask all these questions as a counselor, get all this stuff out on the table so you can help them sort it out. <clears throat> you know, in your regular counseling, you do data gathering. Well, here you're going to do data gathering, and it's not going to just be uh, one questionnaire to the couple. It's going to be a multifaceted questionnaire. It's going to be a multifaceted data gathering and data mining operation. If you're going to actually help them think through how to do this. I have had a situation in which I've had mom and dad, the couple, the siblings that were going to do the caring, and three or four other siblings in a conference on all at the same time. That gets to be a tricky operation. And by the way, one little thing I try to teach my students is as the counselor, you have to be in control of the session. Well, when you get a multiple discipline like that, you really have to be in charge of the session because it'll get out of hand real fast if you don't. And then, then there's also extended family. It's the parents' siblings. No? Uh, Pam, tell me a little story about Aunt Ida. The one where she held her hands and... And a very dynamic woman. Yeah, it was a year later when we were back in town visiting.
then there are legalities to consider. A power of attorney, end-of-life documents, I'll talk about that a little bit more later, uh, financial considerations, and end-of-life arrangements. Power of attorney means, if you're not familiar with that term, that means that I sign over to you my power to self-manage. You become the one who manages my life. Now, that's general terminology, but that's what it boils down to. Today, we have several different pieces to that. You can have a power of attorney over health um, and, and, and just that. You have power of attorney over just this action. But in the broad sense, when my dad gave me power of attorney, he handed over to me the right to manage his life. <clears throat> so that needs to be discussed. Yeah. And my recommendation is you get a power of attorney while there's no question that that person is in their right mind when they sign it over to you. Then, it, then the other siblings, if they get bent out of shape, they can't go to court and question it because it was done in the right set of circumstances. End-of-life documents, again, I'll come back to those a little bit. Financial considerations. Who is going to pay what? That's basically what that boils down to. If you have good cooperation between siblings, then one is going to invest the time to care and open their house. The other one is going to pay for this or this or this. And it's all open and above board and out front. And I recommend to families when they do these kind of things that they have a monthly uh, family um, gathering in which they keep each other up to date exactly what they've done, what they're doing, what the expense has been. And those who are handling the money hand out a spreadsheet of some sort that you can follow the paper trail for the money. Doing that... Keep from having suspicion. Suspicion leads to resentment. So you want to keep that out of the mix as much as possible. <coughs> Usually, it's good to have, to identify somebody as the moderator for that meeting. That's one of that person's responsibility. It may be the caretaker, it may not be the caretaker. It may be the sibling that has the levelest head. <clears throat> and if it's, some are Christians and some are not Christians, I would like to have a Christian in that place, a moderator. But there needs to be somebody to do that. And then end-of-life arrangements. Again, it's best if the parent will agree to getting the end-of-life arrangements all done while they are in the position to be able to make those choices and not leave it to the kids to fight over. But best to lay it all out. My, my wife and I did that this, this past fall. We we're going to be buried above ground in a mausoleum because it was $5,000 a head cheaper. And I think Jesus can get me out of a vault just as easy and get me out of a grave. <laughs> we got it all done. So... When that time comes, there's nothing for the kids to decide. 
I, for me, I don't know whether she has or not, I didn't ask her on this one, but for me, I have my, I'm going to change it, but I have per, per, currently have laid out my funeral arrangement. This is, this, this is what hymns I want, this is what I want said, this is in terms of, uh, I'm not dictating to pastor's sermon, but basically frame it, in other words, frame it. I want it done. I don't want, any, I don't want them to have to think about it, number one. Number two, I don't want to give any chance for differences. So I'm, I'm saying ahead of time. <clears throat> it's also good, obviously, I'm going to, again, I'm going to talk about documents, but this is in my head, I'm going to do it right now. Your counselees, if they don't have a will, get a will. And I'm going to go, I'm going to meddle here. If you don't have a will, get a will. Okay? It makes settlement a whole lot easier, and it doesn't give the government near as much money. So make sure they have a will. And sometimes personal things don't get in that will. You may have a beautiful pair of earrings that came from your great-grandmother. Designate who it's going to go to and put it as an attachment to your will. I have a gun, a safe full of guns, I don't have a big collection, but I do have a collection. And I've, in letter form, I've designated who gets which one. Because my son would just as soon have them all. Now, they wouldn't fight over them, but my son would just as soon have them all. Uh, so I've designated who gets which one. You remove the occasion for offense by doing this. And if, you're gonna, if your counselees are going to move into this phase of caring for a parent, this is the time to make sure this stuff is done. Most of the time, when you make this transition, the parent is still uh, mentally capable. May not be, but most of the time they are. So help them see the necessity of getting these things done now. Um, resolving unfinished business makes parenting parents a better experience. Now, I couldn't find a good picture to picture this, so this is a picture I took when I was building my railroad. <clears throat> and it, it, it was unfinished then, and since then it's been torn down and it's unfinished, it's going to be rebuilt, rebuilt when I move. But it just kind of illustrates for you the fact. Unfinished business. Now, when that was finished... It was, it was almost, it was a little workspace there, and it was all paneled in. It looked real pretty. This way it was unfinished. People have a lot of unfinished business, and I'm going to cite six areas of unfinished business to be alert to when you're counseling somebody who's going to be caring for parents. And sometimes you may be able to teach a Sunday school class of 30 to 40-somethings, and you might say, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to do three lessons on preparing to parent your parents biblically and just introduce some of this stuff. It's amazing to me how many people don't consider it when we have so many elderly people in our society. But they don't. I taught a class a couple of years ago, and I was going to do four Sundays on this. The class leader asked me to do it. 
And when I walked in the first week, he introduced and told class what I was going to do. I could see in their faces like, what are we doing that for? It wasn't said, but it certainly was expressed. They just weren't thinking that way. Six critical issues. Help parents run the final lap gracefully. Here's the first one. Personal failures. And I'm giving you a recommendation. They aren't the only ones. They're just ones that I'm familiar with. Okay? Helping personal failures. My friend Bill Hines, uh, who co-authored the book Curing the Heart with me, Bill wrote a book called called, uh, Leaving Yesterday Behind. I use that book in my lay counselor training. I have been using it for 20 years. I always give my students the assignment to write a two-page personal reflection paper on on that text. That's their assignment. Out of a class of 20, 25 people, I always have at least three or four. In their paper, will say, I'm so glad you made me read this because it helped me resolve something that's been in my life for years. He just has a neat way of developing it. <clears throat> Personal failures that you, your parent, maybe your, your parent counselee may be de- dealing with is the prodigal child and the accompanying guilt that goes with it. Some people, when they have a prodigal child, take all the responsibility. Now, maybe they have some significant things that they can see harm their child's thinking process growing up. Okay. Then let's deal with that. Let's get that square with God. Let's get that square with your child if that's possible. And then, thank God, you've come to the place where you've resolved it. And put it on the shelf. Otherwise, Satan takes that and continues to beat the person up as they beat themselves up. And it continues to interfere with their spiritual growth and development. This is a good time to discover that and to deal with it. Sometimes a parent will will, um, feel terrible because they have the inability to provide for their own self-care. And sometimes some of that's justified. They didn't save for retirement. They squandered their money. They were foolish. They gambled it away, whatever the case may be. Help them finish that between them and God and put it aside. We are living in the present. We're not living in the past. Sometimes it's regrets over a broken family. One church my wife and I served in we met some unbelievably lovely families, adult families. And as we got to know them, there were about 10 of them in particular, as we got to know them, we found out that they all were converted around the age of 40, 35 to 40, and they all had teenagers when they were converted. And 
those that were working with them did a great job in discipling them. Did a poor job of helping them help their children understand what had taken place and why the changes in their lifestyle. And as a result, the kids became resentful and bitter and made lots of stupid choices in their lives. And here we had these lovely adult, 60-something adults, walking around with this pain of the mistakes they made and the, and the resultant uh, broken families that went with it. Some of them were, ended up with divorces and it just, you know, those messy kinds of things. Sometimes people who have been married and divorced and then have a great marriage second time around, but their kids didn't react very well to the divorce. And they, they, they come toward the end of life and they live in Regretsville. Instead of living in the present, they live in Regretsville. Instead of living in the, in, in the basking in the forgiveness of God, they live in the sea of turmoil because of their children's situation. That's unfinished business. Yeah, this is a great opportunity to see that and to help them come to resolution of those things. Resolution doesn't mean they can change their kids and fix them. That's not resolution. Resolution means you deal with it in here, in your heart, in your inner soul, and the way you do it between you and your spouse. <clears throat> Some of them have regrets over career failures. And one of the best books I've come upon, how many of you are familiar with um, J.I. Packer's uh, Knowing God? Remember that? Okay. Well, this is J.I. Packer at 10th grade level. The God You Can Know by Dan DeHaan. Dan is a was an Atlanta boy who had a great ministry for about 20 years and then was killed in a plane crash. <clears throat> this is the only book of, that I know of that was published of his. But it's just a great book to help people think about who God is and how does that relate to who I am. <clears throat> people People regret that they did not achieve goals, and that leads to depression. People are forced to take early retirement because they, some career decisions they made along the way, and that leads to depression. Some people, because they have a minimal estate to leave to their kids, leads to depression. Again, these are things that need to be rethought biblically and come to grips with in terms of who God is and how God enables us to deal with life. I think Dan's book is really good for that. What he does is he walks you through the character of God. But like I say, he does it at about a 10th grade level. And you know, the old, uh, some of the older writers used to say, you... you uh, 
you have to know yourself in order to really understand God. And my friends, it's the other way around. You really know, need to know God so you can know who you are. And I think this book helps people get there. <clears throat> Another is self-perception. <clears throat> I call it the self-perception adjustment. And some, some years ago, I put together a little booklet called Who I Am in Christ. It's just a little thing, a little fill-in-the-blank kind of think through and fill-in-the-blank thing. And that's why I say you can use other things. I'm just giving you an example of something that I've done. <clears throat> but I found a lot of times that people... Their self-perception is created by their choices, is created by other people's choices, is created by what other people think, is created by television programs, all kinds of things. We were talking with somebody yesterday or day, I forget which it was now, <clears throat> in which the, the, the very issue in that person's life was the, their, the way they perceived themselves and then the choices they made based on the way they perceived themselves and the way they perceived themselves was totally out of sync with a biblical view of who they are, how God made them, what abilities he's given, what disabilities he sometimes gives. You ever thought about that way? You have a disability? You ever thought about that as a gift from God? That's not easy. But because you have a disability sometimes, if you view it as all good gifts come down from the Father of lights, then you view yourself with that disability very differently than you do when you only compare yourself to others who don't have that disability. One of my associates at Briarwood, early 50s now, has cerebral palsy. He walks kind of like this. His hands are usually like this. But he's on our staff. He's pastor of Mercy Ministry. He's finished seminary. He's got a great sense of humor. He plays golf. He's a good counselor. He's taught our Sunday school class. He's a good Sunday school teacher. Early in his life, through Frank Barker, the founding pastor of Briarwood, he learned to see his physical condition as that which God gave him and made him. Would you believe that guy with that condition up until he was 40 years of age, worked with our junior high school kids. And the kids loved him. And he did a great job. Right? So, self-perception. This little booklet, and there are others around that do the same thing, that helps people get that right perspective on self. A role exchange from being somebody, this is retirement. I got this from somebody else. I thought it was really good. A role exchange from being somebody 
retirement is a role exchange from being somebody who earns one's way to somebody with the right to have an income without working and the autonomy to manage their time. And I'd add to that, and the possibility of focused service for the kingdom. I don't remember who I got that from. As I give, I, whoever he is, I give him credit. I don't know where it came from. But I thought it was worth noting. The fourth critical situation is family conflicts. And here I'd recommend Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Conflicts over distribution of the estate. Conflicts over who will care for the parent. Uh, conservations that, conversations that will allow the family to plan for and care and distribute the estate. All these things that I mentioned earlier today need to be open and honest. Ken Sandy's book takes biblical counseling and reframes it a bit and focuses it just on dealing with family conflicts. And he brings that uh, peacemaker uh, slant to it. It's a good book. He's got some, uh, he doesn't others, but this is the one I'd recommend along this line. Another is living arrangements. The art of aging, that's the one I have, uh, mine that's downstairs. Focusing questions before they face you, focusing on questions before they face you. Will I be able to live on my own? No one knows that answer. Alternatives need to be considered in advance. I'm going to live with him or her, which child, how long with each child, or am I going to live with a sibling? Do I have to go to a nursing home, retirement living facility, so forth? Research available available communities. In other words, thinking ahead of the curve. Um, We mentioned that we're looking at moving to Augusta. Part of that move is thinking ahead of the curve. If you have a son and a daughter, who's most likely to take care of you? The daughter, right. So we are, that's part of our rationale for relocating at this point in our lives. I'm going to be 80 my next birthday. Doesn't seem possible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What was that? Yes. Don't forget, you're married to him. <laughs> uh, who knows? I might have five, six, seven, eight good years yet. I, I, did a, I went online today and I did a, did a profile on myself. I have 6.3 months to go. I did her. She's got 13.6 months to go, which brings her right up to where her mama went home to be the Lord. Yeah, yeah, years, right, yeah. Uh, but you don't know, you don't know. So it's thinking ahead, thinking about these things, be facing these questions before, boom, they hit you in the face. Okay? And I give you a list of biblical passages and passages there to, that provide principles to think with in this case. The last one, I told you I'd come back to this. Am I ready to die? How many of you are familiar with evangelism explosion? It's not as popular as it used to be. Some are. Okay. E.E. ended up with two questions. 
you memorized the book, and at the end of the book, you had two questions you asked people. The book was the presentation of the gospel in depth. At the end, there were two questions you asked people. <clears throat> and I think these are two questions at this point in life, if they hadn't been asked before, need to be asked. Either as a counselor, you do the asking, or their pastor does the asking, but somebody does the asking. <clears throat> so the question is, who will evangelize my parent? And my answer is everyone who knows them. Okay? <clears throat> and always remember, God converts, you don't. Okay. Question one. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you were to go to heaven? Or is that something you would say you're still working on? That last part keeps it from being offensive. It gives them opportunity to respond to it. And I give you a reference to use there, 1 John 5, 13. These things have been written that you might... What's the next word? No. Yeah. Um, second question. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And I put that picture there to emphasize that little phrase at the end, direct but gentle. Now, I mentioned that aging adults are a good opportunity. Let me, let me give you three quick illustrations of that. <clears throat> when we moved to Sullicog, Alabama, where I was senior pastor for a few years, the senior elder told me the night I accepted the call, he called me and said, I want to want to tell you how glad I am you accepted the call and I wanted to tell you my assignment. How's that coming from your senior elder? He said, you need to bring my mother-in-law to Christ. She was 92 at the time. So when we got there, I made it a point every Monday to visit her. Almost every Monday, but we'll say every Monday, you know, there were exceptions. And they brought her to church. She would come. She was hard-nosed, Christ of Church, Church of Christ background. Brilliant woman, had been the first white woman to ever be the principal of an all-black elementary school in Washington, D.C. Very bright gal. And I visit with her. And I take about 10 minutes and ask her about her life. Get her talking about her life. And then I take about five minutes and ask her to critique the sermon. Didn't ask her what she got. I just asked her to critique it. We did that quite regularly on Mondays. A year after I was there, I went to church Sunday morning to set some things up, and that senior elder was there, and I walked in the door. He grabbed me, and he hugged me. He said... Mom came to my wife yesterday and said, I understand, I'm ready to accept Jesus. I got to baptize her at 93 and see her come into into the fold. And within six months of that, I stood by her bed 
we were praying, and in the background was playing on a boombox, was praying, uh, was playing, it is well with my soul. And while we were praying, she expired. There was another man in that church, we'd been there about three or four months. He had been there maybe twice in that time. His wife had been there maybe four times in that time. I got word that his 35-year-old daughter suddenly died of an aneurysm. She was being buried in Tuscaloosa, which is about 40, 40, 50 miles from us. So we went to the funeral, and I told my wife, I said, we'll go to the funeral, I said, and then we'll leave. Because I hardly knew the people. I just went out of, mostly out of courtesy to everybody else, not even to, so much for them, because they didn't know them. As we were come, walked out of the, the church to leave, one of the teenagers ran up to me and said, this guy's nickname was Tiny, he said, Tiny wants you to go to the graveyard with him. Well, I handed Pam the keys, and I said, follow us. I went over and got in the hearse, and in one of those situations where you were riding face-to-face like this, folks, I've never heard anybody scream like that man screamed. And she, she was about 15 years younger than he, maybe 20. She was embarrassed. Her face was red. She was so embarrassed. And I just reached over, and I squeezed his knee, and I looked at her, and I said, it's okay. It's just his grief. It's okay. We, we did the funeral. We went home. I did the same thing with him. I went every week to his house. For the first three months, he never talked to me. She'd let me in. He'd sit at the dining room table on the end, and I'd sit at the dining room table this way. I'd hold his hand. I'd read a scripture passage in about 15 minutes, and I'd pray, and I'd leave. Did that for about three months. And then one day I walked in and he looked at me and he said, thank you. And he started talking. And over a period of time, I was able to evangelize him. And he, he was about 70 years old at that time. Was able to baptize him and see him come into the church. Kind of comical because he became one of the best servants in the church. He was an avid fisherman. And he had a great big monstrosity of a cooker. So whenever we had something going on in church and we wanted food, he'd go catch a mess of fish and bring his cooker over and we'd have a fish fry. About eight, seven or eight years later, I was, had moved away. About seven or eight years later, I was back in town. I decided I'm going to go visit Tiny while I'm in town. I went by his house, knocked on the door. Nobody there but Tiny. He said, come on in. So we sat down and we talked. About 20, 30 minutes, I said, Tony, he said, I got to go. I got another appointment I have to go to. And my elders were not real sure of his conversion when he, when he, because he, he didn't have the language to say it the right way. And I said to them, I said, guys, you're going to trust me in this one. I'm convinced he's, he knows the Lord. That day, Tony looked at me. He said, thank you, Arky. That's my nickname. He says, thank you, Arky, for coming to Silicata. I wouldn't have known Jesus if he hadn't come. I'd say that's a pretty clear testimony. Can old people be evangelized? Yeah, they can. I learned something in my secular training that helped me.
You ever heard of the theory of reminiscence? No, most of you wouldn't because it's kind of a technical term used in, in gerontology. And what it is is you meet with an old person and you simply get them to talk about themselves and reminisce with you, tell you about their past life. Engage them and bring their mind back into play and keep pulling it forward in the conversation so they re-engage more and more moving through life up to the present. It's called reminiscence. I learned from that. I'm convinced you can lead old people to Christ, but you've got to take the time to build the connection with them. You've got to build the time for them to trust you. You've got to build the time, you've got to build it to the place where they can tell you their doubts and they can tell you their, their questions and not feel like you're going, they're going to be judged. That probably works for a lot of other people too, but it particularly works with the elderly. Building that connection with them gives you the platform to ask those two questions. Well, those are the six critical errors. How are we doing on time? I supervise quite a number of people that get their certification. And I find that many people have picked up catchphrases. And I've just very graciously on my, the way I do my supervision, they email me their, their report. And I have a system I use. They email me the report. And I go through it, read through it. And I type into it my suggestions, my critiques, my questions, and things I want them to consider. And I send the report back to them. And uh, I just very graciously sometimes say, you use this term. Tell me exactly what were you trying to identify with this term? I don't critique their using it. I push them to make sure they can tell me what they meant by it. And about 50% of the time, they can't. They just never stop to think about it. They heard the term. They picked the term up. It's a good term to use. It sounds good. And, and I wouldn't say they're doing it because they think that way. I think that's just a natural kind of thing when you you're, have these terms thrown at you all the time. You know, yeah. Take the word sanctification. How many people really know what that means? And my guess is maybe one out of ten people you ask to define it can define it correctly. It's just a term we learn. It means being a good Christian. Yes, but how does that happen? Kind of thing. Okay, enough of that. Preparing to care, three essentials. The influence upon our lives determines our heart attitudes and our heart attitudes determine the way we think and choose expectations, view the inevitables, and process our spiritual life. <clears throat> um, 
I'm just trying to illustrate there for you. We have selfish influences. We have worldly influences. Selfish there can be a gathering place for a lot of things. Influence our hearts. Our biblical exposure influences our hearts. That in turn influences the way we think. And the way we think determines what our expectations are, what the, how we think about the inevitables and what we do with them, and we'll get to that word in a minute, and how we think about the spiritual and how we do it. Okay? <clears throat> Saturation with biblical truth is essential for how we handle parenting our parents. And I could take you lots of different passages, but two passages that strike me <clears throat> is Philippians 4.8 and uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Having the mind of Christ on one side and on the other side, choosing the way we think about things. Right? <clears throat> um, preparing yourself. What are your expectations with this caring for parents? That's a question I ask the council They're at the place you're going to have to do this. What are your expectations? What is your mental picture? What is it going to look like? And again, I'm going to call my wife to tell you something that she experienced very briefly. But tell them about being a geriatric nurse.
Thank you, sweetheart. <clears throat> there are financial things. We mentioned this before, so I'm not going to begin. Uh, there's the kitchen in Pam. That's another story. With the first Sunday we all moved in the house we built for them to have their side of the house and our to have our side of the house, my mother was extremely hard of hearing. She didn't go to church anymore. So while we were, I'm a pastor, and I, we, have all, we have two children. So while we're at church and doing our thing, mom goes into her kitchen and cooks Sunday dinner. She wasn't ready for that. <laughs> and I just thought I had to kind of put my arm around her and say, sweetheart, you need to understand, mom's not trying to take over your kitchen. Mom is trying to be helpful. That's her nature. And it just took that for her to reconfigure it, put off the expectation that mom wouldn't be in her kitchen, and accept the reality. And I like to tell these stories. I like her to be part of telling these stories because they, they, they make this stuff real. They don't, it's not academic. It's real. <clears throat> Preparing yourself. Uh, I hit the wrong button on this thing sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> the other one there is the children who disciplines and who gives treats. That was another struggle we have with mom. She just insisted on giving candy. <laughs> Sweetheart, she, you know, she just wanted to be sweet. <laughs> and then the inclusive, um, how does the family live? You know, how do you do that? Or exclusive, do they live in with you or do they live in a separate quarters? Or what I call mixclusive, which means they have their own quarters, but you're always back and forth. And that was kind of the way ours was. Conflict resolution. How have, talking to the counselee, how have you and your parent handled conflict previously? If thorny, then discuss your, with your mate and parents, before you combine a household, take the financial things, the siblings, all those things into consideration. And again, I touched on that earlier to some extent, but it just bears reiteration under this heading here. Inevitables. What are inevitables? Well, conflict is one of them. Con- conflict is one of them. I was up in my study, which was upstairs in that house, and working on a sermon. And I heard a ruckus out back. And I jumped up and I ran downstairs and ran out on the deck. And there was Pop chasing my seven-year-old son across the backyard with swinging his cane at him. I leaped off the deck and ran out and got between them, and I grabbed that Pop's arm up in the air. He's a little guy, but I grabbed Pop's arm sticking up in the air like this. And I said, you go back to your side of the house, and don't let me ever catch you doing this again. He went off cussing up one side and down the other side and went back to his side of the house. I sat down on the grass with David, and I said, David, I am so sorry that you had to observe that. Your grandfather's mind is going. And unfortunately, your daddy is having to become his daddy. 
I'm, I'm having to take over parenting my dad. David was fine with that. I just sat down. I just explained it to him, put it in those kind of terms. He was fine with it. Some years later, I asked my son one day when he was 19, I said, son, <clears throat> what could have I done differently to, that life would have had not had so many difficulties growing up? <laughs> he thought for me, he looked at me, he said, well, you could have beat my bottom more so I'd have studied harder. I said, you forgot how often I did that. <laughs> and then he, then he paused. He looked at me and said, Dad, he said, I think you think because Pop lived with us and he treated me the way he treated you that it had the same impact on me as it had on you. And he said, it didn't. He said, I love Pop Pop. He's, it's, it was okay. That would meant a lot to me but I thought it was kind of interesting that he, at 19, could step back and look at it that way. So it will be in a depression also, both for the caretaker and for the parent, will occur. Underscore, will. Depression is likely... Will likely be a component of your parents' experience and your experience. Why? <clears throat> Diminish capacity for recognition. And they know it. They know it. It's happening. They're aware of it. More than you think they are. That's depressing. Stop and think about it. Then there's the death expectation. They know they're going to die. It's get, hey, look, I know that. I mean, I know that. But I know that more now than I ever knew it. I did that little survey on the, on the web. I got 6.3 years to go. Man, that makes it pretty real. And I got all my faculties yet. When your faculties are confused, it's even worse. Fear of self-harm or violence. Both, on te- both the caregiver has the fear of the self-harm and the parent has fear of doing self-harm. And I'm going to give you a statistic on that after a while. <clears throat> Depression of the caregiver. The caregiver gets overwhelmed. And people who are not used to dealing with pressure very well will deal with it less well in these circumstances. So help them evaluate that and be prepared for that. Anxiety over the ability to do what is necessary. I can remember a couple of things along the way that Pop said to me about he really needed to do this, but he couldn't do it anymore. I remember the day I took his keys away. That Aunt Ida that we talked about, his sister, lived 30 miles away. He had driven that with great regularity. Two or three times a week, Mom and he went to Aunt Ida's. And then all of a sudden, one day, he went to Aunt Ida's, and he left Aunt Ida's, and six hours later, he wasn't home. 
And then there were a couple other things that occurred, and I just sat down with them and I said, Pop, I hate to do this, but I think it's time you give me your car keys. And again, much to my surprise, he handed it to me. It was really interesting to me that my dad was at that, particularly at that level where he knew it was, his capabilities were diminishing. And I guess in God's providence, I just asked at the right time for things. <laughs> and he was cooperative because he saw it coming. It doesn't always happen that way, believe me. <clears throat> and then there is, um, there is resentment toward the loved one who's caring for them <clears throat> or toward God. You got me locked up in this house. I don't want to be locked up in this house. I want to do my own thing. But Pop, you're not capable of doing your own thing. I don't care. I want to do my own thing. And there's a, a real resentment that develops. Or maybe somebody who looked like they really walked with the Lord and then all of a sudden this begins to happen to them and they begin to become angry with God because it's happening. <clears throat> and under all these things, I think it's a place as a counselor you need to have some psalms in your repertoire that you know well and that you can walk people through. One of my favorites is Psalm 73. Walk people through it. There are other ones, but that's one of my favorites. And then there's the common depression cycle. This is the way it often happens. Disappointment, can't believe God is allowing this. That leads to discouragement. Sweet mama's gone. That leads to disillusionment. Life will never be the same. That leads to the depression. I don't want to face another day. And that leads to the stage of demoralization. I can't do this. And I can't live this way anymore. And that leads to death. Not always literal death, but loss of relationships. Lots of different ways. <clears throat> so, you can, you can follow that spiral a lot of times. Particularly with older people, you can watch, see the spiral pretty clearly. Then it's the spiritual. <clears throat> Your walk with the Lord is essential and is depression preventative. Your personal walk, learn to think biblically. God is in control. <clears throat> Folks, I don't know what all your backgrounds are, but I'll tell you, for me, I'm from Pennsylvania. What's, what, is the, what, what is Pennsylvania? It's the Keystone State. Okay? What is the keystone? Well, look at any archway, stone archway, and the keystone sits here. Take the keystone out and the whole arch falls down. Well, it, for me, the sovereignty of God is that way. Take that keystone out and the rest of your theology just falls apart. The place of comfort for me in these kind of circumstances is my God is in control. It may not feel like it. It may not smell like it. It may not sound like it. But my God is in control. And I want to constantly remind myself of that. It gives perspective to everything else. And then, but learn to think realistically. 
maintain a personal life, whether if you're a caretaker, right? it doesn't matter whether it's hobby, Bible studies, date night with your mate, whatever it is, maintain it. You may have to modify the way you do it. You may have to modify when you do it. But keep those things in one's life. And then practice, as my wife said a little bit ago, a sense of humor. Now, I'm, eight, I'm dating myself here. How many of you know who Irma Brombeck is? A few, a few of the older ones. We, her books are still available. She's a secularist. That's to my knowledge, she's not a believer. But she can write some really funny stuff about life. And if, you, if you're just frustrated with the whole thing, you need to laugh. Just go to the library and get one of Irma's books and read it. You'll laugh yourself out of the doldrums. She, she, just, she just does that to you. It may be somebody else. Maybe you, now, I'm an old Bob Hope fan. Again, I'm dating myself. I'm an old Bob Hope fan. One of the few comedians I really enjoyed was Bob Hope. So find an old flick on, on uh, YouTube and watch Bob Hope. But find some ways to just be human. <clears throat> Preparing your home is another thing you have to do when you're thinking about caring for uh, a Spouse even, but mostly parents we're talking about here. Think through the physical need. Bathing, walking, privacy, hallways. We're, we're looking, we moved down there to Gus, we're looking to buy another house. We want to make sure the hallways are wide enough for a wheelchair. And we want to make sure the master, we found some really nice homes, but the masters are on the second floor. We ought to have a master on the first floor. It's just, and we don't want 16 steps to go up to the front door. Yeah. We're trying to think ahead and at least, as best we humanly can, prepare for what may be the inevitable at some point. <clears throat> so sometimes I have to ask the question, do we remodel? Or do we build another house? And I've counseled with folks where remodeling was a good possibility. I've taught, counseled with others where I've said, you know, I would really think twice about this, and I'd get, I'd get a contractor who's handled gerontological rehousing before and sit down and let somebody who's been there knows it talk you through it. Right? And so I don't forget it because my sweet wife reminded me. We talk about financial things and, and papers and so forth. <clears throat> there are lawyers today who specialize in popular level, it's called elder law. Professionally, it's called gerontological law. Same thing, once it's a fancy word and one's reality. <laughs> but uh, elder law, if you're counseling, somebody in your church, you're associated with a church of this kind, somebody needs to have a referral to, to an elder lawyer a lawyer to practice elder law because they know all the legal specifications and they keep up with the changes. Okay? Thank you. <laughs> um, and when you're talking about this home thing and putting it together, always include the parent in the conversation unless dementia has already set in. We sat down with my mom and dad 
before these issues came up, we sat down with them and we said, here's the reality. There's nobody but me. I'm the only child. There's nobody but me to be available for care. What do you, what, what do you think about doing this? And I just proposed it to them. And they agreed. And so we sold the farm and we went ahead with the process. <clears throat> now, the caring process. Three essentials to the caring process. <laughs> Isn't that interesting to see that as the first one? Love. Well, what does love look like? Well, first of all, it means to honor them. Respect their position as the parent. Uh, <clears throat> we could probably have an hour's conversation of what that looks like in a lot of different ways. But I'm going to settle pretty much right now for the principle. Love them, honor them. Secondly, forgive them. It really is difficult when it comes time to care for a parent and your that that counselee knowingly or unknowingly is harboring a resentment for something in the past. If as I said earlier, if that unfinished business isn't tended to, that unfinished business is going to drive the relationship. So look for it, explore it with people and help them get it resolved. Esteem your parent publicly and privately. Commend them before others. Express appreciation in daily life. And I would, in my teaching, I have often told a lot of these different stories out of my my dad and, and my relationship growing up. And one day after class, I had a gal walk up to me. She said, you must really resent your father. I said, no, but why do you make that observation? She said, well, you tell all these bad stories. I said, no, I tell, I tell stories about reality and, and what, how the reality was and how I had to learn to deal with it. So I don't resent my dad. I, in fact, I find myself every once in a while in my prayer time thanking God that my dad was a hard-working, honest man and provided to the best of his ability and taught me the best he could with what he knew. Now, did we have a great relationship? No. In fact, I had a better relationship with my dad the last 11 years than I had all my life before that. There were a lot of different reasons for that. But it was a reality. Pop wasn't mean because he wanted to be mean. He just was mean. He didn't mean to be. It just came out that way. I could never do anything right. No matter what it was, it was never right. It was never good enough. In my book, that, that, there's a meanness in that. It may not be meant that way. It may have been meant to perfect me but it came across as a kid as meanness. And I reacted to it as accordingly. But my dad, when I grew up, I realized my dad, dad, and I'm going to use a term here, most of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. His father was a hod carrier. A hod carrier is a guy that put a box on his shoulder filled with wet concrete and ran it up 
a flight or two of ladders to supply the bricklayer building a building. Now, you do that job 10 hours a day, five and a half days a week. How much is left to be a father? Put together with that, my dad was the last of eight. So he had no model. He had no opportunity of a relationship with his father. He had no idea what that looked like. So he lived his life in his present. He had to figure out what he was going to do. My dad was a pipe fitter, worked on big construction work, would leave six in the morning to drive an hour or two to where the job was, work his eight hours, and drive an hour or two home. How much was left when he got home? But it took me until I was in my early 20s before I began to put that together. And I began to realize there are reasons why Dad was the way he was. And I don't know whether I don't know whether to say it was a process of forgiving or a process of understanding, and it probably was probably some of both. But it began to make a difference in the way I perceived him, the way I related to him. That's just reality of life, folks. And you have to help people process those things. <clears throat> Support them. There will be many dimensions. And they will differ from situation to situation. I don't know how they're going to need support. You have to figure that out as you go along. You need a plan. A plan for physical care. How will you handle medicine? How will you handle bathing? How will you handle outings? Bathing didn't become a problem until what? Maybe the last three years of Pop's life? About that. It was, and he had what I would call, he had Alzheimer's, and he had what I would call moments of lucidity. Where he could look at you and tell you, say something to you, say or ask something, and it made perfect sense and it was very legitimate. One day I walked into his apartment and his, he, was, he was a mess to the point that I just threw the clothing away. Got him in the shower, cleaned him all up, brought him back out to the bedroom. And as I said, Pop was only about five foot five. And I kneeled down beside him and I was drying off his, his naked body. And he leaned over and he put his hand on my shoulder. I've got to picture this in my mind like it happened yesterday. Leaned over and put his hand on my shoulder. And I can't use the language he used because we're in church. <clears throat> but he leaned over, he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, boy, kid, I would be in a shape if it wouldn't, wouldn't be for you, wouldn't I? And I looked up and I said, yeah, Pop, that's what family's all about. And just as quick as he was lucid, he was gone. He was off in la-la land, just that quickly. Now, if you study about Alzheimer's, you'll find out that's not unusual. Okay. <clears throat> so bathing, strip them and wash them. That, that's what it boiled down to. No? I'm glad I felt really... I hurt for her because she had to do that for my dad. I am glad I didn't have to do that for her mother. No. Makes it really awkward. But it has to be done. She said, you do what you have to do. And you have to help people walk through that. 
a respite care. If you're going to care for parents, if your counselees are going to care for parents, make sure they understand what respite care is. Do some, help them do some research in the area where you live and find out what respite care is available. And here's a good thing for churches. We need more of this at the church level where the church puts together a team of people who have the, the bent, the personality for it, to be help the other folks who are caring for older people to, to provide respite care. A two-hour slot where the husband and wife can go out for dinner. That's nothing more than that. I don't have time to really go into it. I fit in another place, but I'll tell you, our church in Miami had a thing they called Tuesday Fours. And what that was on the fourth Tuesday from 10 through lunchtime to 1 o'clock, these Alzheimer's, uh, other uh, elderly that were being cared for, people could bring them to church, and we had a team of volunteers who put on a meal for them, put on games with them, and kept them occupied. So that those women that were in those caretaking places could have a a two-and-a-half-hour break once a month for sure. They called it Tuesday 4th. My dad loved it because there were a bunch of women there. He thought he'd gone to a party. (laughs) It was really funny to watch it. Uh, Spiritual. Keep the parent connected to church. Get them there. Remember I told you about the 92-year-old lady? They brought her every Sunday. And it was a bring because she was stiff-legged. She was hard for her to walk, but they made sure she got there. Pray with the parent regularly. Even if they're an unbeliever, just put your hand on their hand and say, hey, let me pray. Won't God take care of you? And just pray out loud. Let them hear you. Now you get one once in a while that'll really balk at that, tell you to blank, 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 get out. Okay. But until they do that, do it. And then engage in Bible study with, with you, your family, and others. Include them as much as possible. Affection. I put this on the spiritual because I think it is. Touch frequently. And the touching can be other than physical care. Don't just touch when you've got to change their diaper. Touch them at other times. Touch when you pray with them. Look them in the eye when you speak to them. That's a form of touch. How many of you gals watch Hallmark movies? Come on now, be honest. Yeah. How they're, how, half the script is their eyes. Okay. It's amazing what we do with our eyes. Well, just because they're old and they're having Alzheimer's and dementia, don't stop using your eyes. Connect with them. And then listen to them intently. Often touch as they talk to you. It's a form of listening. Well, I purposely pushed here to get to the end of the slides so we could have some time for questions because I went through a lot of stuff there and did it pretty quickly. 
So what kind of questions do you have? 